Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us today, it is a great day to kind of join us for worship. We're kicking off a new series called We Are. And in this series, we're really going to be talking about seven characteristics we believe God wants to define us as followers of Jesus together wants to define us as a church family. And of course, since the church is not a building or a place or a pastoral staff, but the church is us, then these are certainly characteristics that we believe God wants to define us as individuals as well. And so we're going to be working through um, seven distinctives. Our mission around here is, you guys know it, right? Becoming like Jesus and making him known. And so in this series, we're talking about what it looks like to be like Jesus, what it looks like to make him known, not ourselves known, what it looks like to represent him well in the world. And the question becomes, who would we be? If we were really becoming like Jesus, what would that really look like? Who would we be and be becoming if Jesus was going to be reflected in our lives. And so our church leadership has been thinking about that, praying and discussing and discerning what characteristics should absolutely mark and define us as a church community. And this series is an answer to that question. But before we dive in, I want to tell you a few things about the list. By the way, you're not going to see the whole list today. You're just seeing the first one on the list. But as we get into this list over the next seven weeks, here's a few things I want you to know about it. Important stuff, okay? One, it's a list that's defined by the scriptures. This is, this is not, we like to be creative around here. It's part of the way we use the gifts that God's given us. But this is not just a nifty list of catchy, generic qualities we came up with in an attempt to be a hipper, cooler church. Like, that, no, that is not what this is about. This these are things, these are qualities, these are characteristics defined by the scriptures for who we ought to be. So defined by the scriptures. Secondly, this is a list determined for this season. One of the things you'll find if you read the Bible is that church leaders, guys like Paul and Peter and Matthew and James and John, wrote to specific churches addressing specific things that church was dealing with. This is why we have a lot of different letters in the New Testament with a lot of different subject material. They're not all the same because every church is different. Every church is facing different things. And we believe the biblical call of leadership is to look at the church, to look at the community and say, what do we most need right now to prayerfully discern what God is calling us, who he's calling us to be, what he's calling us to focus on as a people in this season that we're in today. And that's what we'll be doing. And so we're going to be defined by the scriptures. We're going to be determined for this season. That's what this list is. And then, and then finally, number three is driven by the spirit. I used three D words there for you guys, just so you could remember it. Defined, determined, driven. Um, in this series, what we'll talk about is 
not a list of things that we should try really, really hard to accomplish. We'll talk about this throughout the entire series, but I want to tell you right up front, this is not a list of things for you to work towards. This is not a, a list of qualities that if you can attain them more, God will love you more. No, these are things that are motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ and empowered in us, driven enough by the work of God's spirit in us. This is not... These are not things we work at on our own. These are things that we allow God to work in us as we surrender more fully to him. And so that's our series. We are. And before we dive in, I want to pray. So pray with me if you would. Father, this seven weeks are, are some weeks where we're going to talk, God, about who we think you want us to be and become. And so we want you to have your way with us. We, we ask you to speak to us, that you would open our minds and hearts to hear from you and experience you throughout this series. And today, this morning especially, God, would, would we feel your good pleasure with us as we respond to your loving grace? We know, Lord, we need to be transformed. We know that we have work to do. We know that we cannot do it on our own. And so we ask that you would come and do the work in us, that we would hear from you, Lord, that we would be thankful for the way that you love us. And God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing about this list I want to say. There's going to be some tension in this series because what we really want is, is accuracy and also some aim. We want, to, we want this list to feel authentic. I, I want you to read this list, and here's my hope and prayer, that you'll read it and go, yep, that's the cedar mill I know. That, that is who we are. That, that, that's us. That's an accurate picture of our church. And then also I want you to say, ooh, we've got some work to do. We're not quite there yet. Uh, we're falling a little short here. And those two realities should sit in tension. If this, if this series doesn't accurately define us, but then also push us forward, we have missed the mark. And so I think it will do both of those things, but that's what we're shooting for. All right, here we go. Let's get busy. One day, Jesus was asked about the most important, the top, the number one instruction for living a good life. And in response to this question, he answered in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Another time Jesus was telling his followers how to live and he said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved, so you must love one another. But he didn't stop there. He even went on to tell them how they would be recognized as his followers, like what their signature characteristic would be as people observed them in the world. And he said it like this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of those disciples was a guy named John, and he went on to write this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And because John knew this would be a very difficult concept for people to embrace, he goes on to say the same thing backwards. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. 
Because God is love. Another follower of Jesus was a guy named Paul. And Paul was passionate about people experiencing the abundant life offered to them in Christ. And so he wrote a lot about love. He wrote things like, follow the way of love. The goal of our instruction is love. Beyond all these things, put on love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. Over and over and over in the scriptures, the Bible is emphatic about this one point. If you don't have love, you have nothing. In Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, the Bible says you can be involved in all kinds of incredible religious experiences. You can be a great preacher or an angelic prayer. You can have trust in God that will move mountains, that will accomplish amazing things in this world. You can be generous with all your stuff. You can give money and possessions and resources to the poor. You can be a martyr. You can give your life. You can suffer tremendous persecution for being a follower of Jesus. But if you do all of these wonderful religious things and you don't have love, your life is just what? A resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Meaningless, annoying, white noise. And I bring this up because I know there will be this temptation for us today. To be complacent about this one. To sit here this morning and think, oh, another message on love. How predictable. How unoriginal. I have heard this before. Friends, a life following Jesus not defined by love is not a life following Jesus at all. This is perhaps the most essential of every single characteristic and quality and distinctive we will cover. Without this one, the rest of them mean nothing. So the question becomes, what is love? What are we really talking about here? What are we after? What are we shooting for? And One of the ways the Bible helps give us clarity is by the word that it uses for love. Some of you probably know this, but the New Testament is written in Greek, and in Greek there are actually four different words for the word love. We have one word, and Greek has four. Greek breaks it down into some different categories. There's philia, that's where we get our word what? Philadelphia. This is brotherly love, you know this. It's the love you might feel for a sibling, or when when you run into an old friend, you feel philia. This week, I am going back to where I went to college, Hastings College in Hastings, Nebraska, the booming metropolis that it is, and I'm having a little reunion with my college roommates. Hard to believe that we graduated a long time ago, and um, we're going to see who gained the most weight and lost the most hair. It's going to be super fun. Um, Not really, but no, we're going to have... There's just gonna, it's going to be a whole philia fest, right? Like, ah, oh, the memories, the friendship the good stories that we can tell there, but not in church. At any rate, um, 
That's philia. Then there's, there's storge. That's another love. It's the love that's felt between parents and children. Most of us have felt storge. Storge is what causes parents to brag about their kids. You've experienced this, right? Parents who can't, won't stop talking about their kids, showing you pictures, posting endlessly, picture after picture after picture. The baby looks the same. (laughs) Why do you keep posting these pictures? She wasn't that cute before. She's still not that cute. But... They post because of storge, friends. That's storge. And don't, I'm just kidding. I love, your kid's cute. My, kid is, my kids were cute too. Actually, when my first daughter was born, I was like, ugh. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. I thought she was going to be like beautiful right away. It took her like three or four days. And then she really was beautiful. But the first couple days, I was like, I'm going to have to work at this love thing. At any rate, <laughs> that's my sermon. Um, and then there's a third kind of love, eros. Eros is the emotional, physical, passionate, desirous kind of love. It's the kind of love that a man feels for a woman. It's the kind of love we won't talk about today, but will address in a marriage series we're planning for the new year. So mark it on your calendars and come back. It's going to be fun. And then finally, there's the fourth kind of love, the the word that we're talking about today, the word that's used in all the Bible passages I've already shared with you this morning. It's the Greek word agape. And agape is a radical love. It's a selfless, sacrificial love. It's love we experience from God. It's a love that gives, the most famous verse in the entire Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave to agape love. Agape has been described as unconquerable benevolence, undefeatable kindness and goodwill, insurmountable grace. It means no matter what someone may say or do to you, insult you, injure you, humiliate you, you you will never seek anything but their highest good. It's a love that doesn't depend on the behavior or attitude or actions of the other. It just loves. Agape is not a love of the heart. It's a love driven, it's not a love driven by how you feel, it's a love driven by the will. It's a love that says, I will do what's best for you, even when there's nothing in it for me. In the ancient world, friends, where Jesus grew up and lived, the word agape was mostly despised. It was mostly thought of by the Greeks and Romans as weak. You'd never want to love this way because that would make you vulnerable and weak. But then Jesus comes along and all of a sudden he starts to flip things around and he says, actually, actually, this love, agape love, is the most powerful force in all the world. You think it's weak, but it's stronger than anything out there. In fact, in Romans, we're told that it's more powerful than death or life, angels or demons, the present or the future, any powers. We're told that height and depth and anything else in all of creation cannot defeat and hold back agape love. A book was written a couple years ago by a family therapist from Kansas City and 
In his book, there's a story about a guy named Jim Roberts. And, and Jim was a dad who was visiting the fourth grade class of his son one day when during PE they had a balloon stomp. Are you familiar with a balloon stomp? If you have not been a youth pastor, let me tell you what it is. It's when you take a balloon, everyone gets one, and you have a string two to three feet long, and you tie the balloon to one of your ankles. And then all the kids go in the gym in a designated area, and the goal is to try and stomp other people's balloons until they pop while protecting your balloon and not allowing others to stomp it out, right? And then, of course, the last person with an inflated balloon is the winner. Well, the teacher gave the signal, and the children leapt ferociously on each other's balloons, all while doing their best to protect their balloon themselves against the onslaught of others. And there was running and pushing and shoving and stomping. And the balloons were soon laid to waste, all but one, the balloon of the triumphant winner. And the game was over. But then, Robert says, something surprising happened. Another class of children showed up, children with mental disabilities. And they began to prepare to play the same game. Balloons were tied to their legs and they were briefed on the rules. But as things got started, things, it was very clear that these kids did not understand what a balloon stomp was all about. They wandered around passively. After a few moments of kind of passive walking around, the idea finally started to resonate with one or two of them that the balloons were supposed to get popped. Well, this idea gradually caught on, but these, these kids missed the spirit of it. Instead of attacking and protecting, they went about methodically and intentionally allowing their balloons to be stomped. He writes, one girl carefully held her own balloon in place so that the boy could pop it, and then they laughed together with a contagious glee. Then he did the same for her. Finally, when all the balloons were gone, the entire class stood and cheered in unison. He writes, in the original game, there was just one winner. In order for me to move up, I had to put you down. But as these children played the game, it was an occasion for love, for helping one another, for building each other up. And I left that day, he says, wondering who got the game right. I love that story, first of all, because it's National Disability Awareness Month, which is a great chance for us to just stop and recognize how our friends here at Cedar Mill who experience disabilities truly bless us and teach us so much of what it really means to follow Jesus. Thank you. I also love this story because I think so many of us, as we walk through life, get sucked into balloon stomp number one. We're just pulled into protecting and advancing, protecting and attacking, moving ahead at the expense of others. But then Jesus comes and he says, there is a better way, a better life, an abundant life. Paul called it the most excellent way, the best way to live. And friends, it sounds like a lot like balloon stomp number two. 
Let me describe it to you. This is Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message from 1 Corinthians 13. Love, agape, never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, keeps going to the end. And friends, no one loved this way like Jesus. No one loved this way like Jesus did. No one embodied agape love the way Jesus did when he walked the earth. In fact, at the end of his life, the night before he was crucified, Jesus was in an upper room with his followers preparing to share a meal with them. And, and John, who writes this story, says... Jesus loved these guys. He loved these guys and he wanted to love them to the very end. He wanted to show them all the way to the end of his life what the love of God really looks like in a human life. It says this, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, friends, this is a familiar story. It's something we've all heard before. It's nothing shocking here for us. But in the ancient world, this was one of the lowest, most degrading tasks there was. In a world where there was not Nikes or paved roads or running water, people's feet was, were disgusting. In fact, to wash someone's feet was a job only a slave or a servant was permitted to do, and in some instances, they were not even permitted to take on such a task. It was even beneath the slaves and the servants. This act of love that Jesus performs is so rash and so audacious that Peter cannot accept it. Do you remember what he says? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No way. Not a chance. You shall never wash my feet, he says. Do you remember this? And yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you are going to become like me and make me known, then you must learn to love this way. You must learn to love extravagantly. Extravagantly, it's a word that means an excessive amount Exceeding the bounds of reason. Going beyond what is deserved. Friends, that's our distinctive today. We are. We long to be and become people who love extravagantly. Who agape love in the way that Jesus loved. Who walk in his footsteps and follow his lead and model our lives of love after him. This week was my birthday week. Thanks to all of you who sent me gifts. <laughs> Good news is I'm still accepting them. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not accepting them. But the best part about my birthday... Um, was 
Friday morning, my birthday was Friday, and I woke up, and we're getting ready for the day. The kids are all scurrying about, and my wife took my oldest daughter to school. She'd come back. I was getting ready to take our youngest daughter to school, and we're about to leave, and, you know, backpacks and lunches and all the stuff, and, and I'm about to leave, and, and still nothing has been said <laughs> about my birthday. And um, at some point in the morning, I started to think, Amy has forgotten my birthday, which actually brought me great joy. I was thinking, I am going to leverage this for a long time. <laughs> that, you know, this is, this is not extravagant love from me, and it certainly wasn't from her. But this is the best part of it. Right before we were leaving, my youngest daughter Peyton and I, I turned to Amy, and I grabbed her by the arm, and I just said, have a special day. <laughs> and, then, and then she sort of looks at me like, why are you being weird? And she's like, you too? That's what she says, you too? And then sure enough, about 20 minutes later, the phone call came. That was my favorite birthday present of the entire day. Her groveling and, no, it was great. Um, that is not extravagant love, friends. It's not what we're talking about. It's not what we see in Jesus. He never lords it over people, right? He never leverages to get an advantage like we're often tempted to do. He loves extravagantly, an excessive amount, exceeding the bounds of reason. He goes beyond what is deserved. In Mark chapter one, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's approached by a man who's a leper. A man who has a terribly disfiguring disease, thought at that time to be tremendously contagious. To get leprosy, friends, in the ancient world was not only a death sentence, it was to face a long, slow, painful, isolating, lonely death. It was the worst sentence you could receive. For this reason, lepers were some of the most isolated unloved, rejected people in the world. And so this man comes to Jesus begging, begging. We're told that he's on his knees. Can you make me clean? Can you heal me? Can you help me? The shock of this story, friends, is not just that Jesus heals him. It's that Jesus touches him. He reaches out and touches this man. A man who had probably not been touched for years. He loves him in a way that exceeds the bounds of reason. Another time Jesus was walking through a town called Jericho where a tax collector named Zacchaeus lived. Tax collectors in Jesus' day had betrayed the Jewish people, betrayed their own people by agreeing to collect taxes for the, the occupying and oppressing Roman government. government. Furthermore, the, the way taxes were collected is you would collect taxes from your people, you would pay a certain amount to Rome, and anything you collected over and above the amount you had to pay to Rome, that was yours to keep. In other words... The more you charged, the more you could keep. And we're told in this story that Zacchaeus is a wealthy man. In other words, he had cheated and swindled and stolen from his own countrymen so proficiently, so abundantly, that he was now rich. 
He got rich off the backs of his own people, rich off the backs of the poor and oppressed people of Israel. He's living high and large, and they're living down and out. Friends, Zacchaeus didn't have many friends. This was a despised individual that no one would associate with, that no one wanted anything to do with. So when Jesus walks up and acknowledges him, you can only imagine, you can read it in the text. Go back and read it this week. It's like right in there. You can only see his face. You can only see the shock and surprise on his face. You can only see his jaw drop when he turns around to think, are you talking to me? Is this rabbi? Is this religious leader? Is Jesus talking to me? You want to come to my house? You want to share a meal with me? You want to be seen with me? You want to be known in this city as my friend? No one wants to be my friend, Jesus. Jesus said, I'll be your friend. This is love in an excessive amount. This is the sort of thing Jesus did all the time, so much so that he developed a reputation. You'll read this throughout the Gospels. Why does your teacher, his disciples are asked, eat with tax collectors and sinners? The people are constantly grumbling. He must be a glutton or a drunkard, they say. They accuse him of this because of the people he, he makes company with. How could he be friends with these people? How could he love them? There's nothing lovable about him. In another story, Jesus speaks with a woman, a woman who was so isolated and judged and rejected for her sexual indiscretion that she was not even welcome to draw water from the well with the other women of her town. She had to go all by herself in the middle of the day so she wouldn't even bump into him. This woman was so aware of her unloveliness so aware of her low status on the social ladder that when Jesus speaks to her, she cannot believe it. How can you even talk to me, she says. Don't you know this isn't allowed? Don't you know this is scandalous? Don't you know this will get you ostracized? But Jesus not only talks to her, he offers her living water, eternal life. You see, Jesus time and time again loved people in a way that shocked them and surprised them. And because his love was excessive and exceeded the bounds of what people thought was reasonable, he was despised. He was eventually hung on a cross. Jesus loved people when they least expected it and least deserved it. That's how he loved. And friends, that's our statement today. For each week of this series, we're going to introduce a distinctive, we believe must define who we are and are becoming as a church. And we're asking you to wrestle with these and to embrace these and to work these into the very fabric of your life. And to help you do this, with each dis distinctive, there's going to be a statement, a little phrase that we want to offer you, that we want to carry with us throughout our days and weeks in life, that we want to carry with us out of this room and into our homes and into our workplaces and at the soccer field when our kids are playing. And when we go to family reunions, we want to carry these phrases with us and we want to let them form us and shape us so that we can actually become like Jesus and make him known. 
These will be biblical truths we hope will help you embrace becoming the person God longs for you to be, the vision he has for you. You know what his vision is for you? Not that you'd accomplish some grand thing, but that you'd become a grand person, that you'd become a person made in the image and who reflects the image of his son. That's God's vision for you and for me. This is a vision series. And our statement today is this. We are people who love extravagantly. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. I'll tell you what, friends. That little phrase has been changing me. That little phrase has been challenging me. That little phrase has been redirecting my life as I'm walking down the sidewalk or driving my car or interacting with somebody who's starting to get on my nerves. That little phrase changes me when I get, all, when I get home from Taco Bell after church only to discover they left out three of my burritos. <laughs> we love people when they least expect it and when they least deserve it. You know what that'll change? Your marriage, your parenting, the way you interact with your parents, how you act at the office, around your boss who drives you nuts. You see, to love extravagantly, to love like Jesus is to do just this, to love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. Because that's the way Jesus loved, friends. Let me ask you today, what if you learn to love this way? What if you, well, I mean, really? I mean, what if it wasn't just a sermon or a moment in time, but what if your life started to look more and more like this? You know, over the past weeks and months, the leaders of our church have been wrestling with these little statements, reading scripture, pouring through stories about Jesus and who he was and what the Bible has to say and what the gospels say and what the New Testament says about these various subjects this week about love. Can I tell you something? I, 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 this week I read every single verse in the New Testament with the word love in it. It was not a, short, not a short activity. It was amazing. It was phenomenal. It was transformative to my heart. So much so that in your small group questions today, some of you may have already seen this, there's a little extra credit challenge for you to sometime this week carve out 40 minutes and I give you some instructions about how to accomplish this on your computer in a really easy way using Bible Gateway. But the internet can be a wonderful thing. But just to sit and read what the New Testament says about love, it will blow your mind. It'll make you so proud of our God. Proud to be one of his kids. Because it shows you real clearly who he is. Anyway, our, our, our leaders have been kind of wrestling and looking at Scripture and wrestling with these statements and talking about them. And uh, 
couple weeks ago, we were kind of still rehashing this one and trying to figure out, you know, how do you take love, the concept of love, Jesus' love, and put it into one little statement? It, it, it literally is almost impossible. Um, and we were kind of like back and forth and kind of hitting some roadblocks. And then finally, just to kind of relieve some of the stress, one of the, one of the elders said, I know, I've got it. How about this? We love extravagantly. We love people when they perform and conform to our expectations. And then we all laughed, didn't we, Doug? It was like, oh, that's funny. And then all of a sudden, it's like we all laughed and then kind of went, oh. Well, that is actually how I love sometimes. A lot of times, maybe more times than I'd care to admit. Dave Teixeira, man, how does he love? He loves people when they perform well and conform to his expectations. Friends, the point is this. We are all tempted to love this way. We're all tempted to love people who are easy to love. We're all tempted to love people who are nice and kind and pretty and put together. We're all tempted to love people when they seem to us love a bull. I love to love lovable people. But Jesus says, your love must go farther than this. Your love must be greater than this. I need you to love extravagantly. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached where Jesus just throws it down and says, here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Here's what it looks like when your life is transformed by the love of God poured out through me in your life. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? You see what he's saying? And that's not extravagant. That's not unique. That's not special. That doesn't take any sort of spiritual empowerment in your heart and soul to love people who love you. Anyone can do that. People who are as far from God as you can imagine can do that. We can all do that. We can all love people who love us. Now, Jesus isn't saying don't love people who love you. Yes, love people who love you. But he says it has to go farther. Who needs extravagant love from you today? Now it gets personal. Now it gets hard. Now it gets a little challenging because I don't like them. I'm enjoying being mad. This grudge I'm holding, it's, it sort of feels good, doesn't it? Who needs extravagant love from you today? What would it look like this week for you to love someone when they least expect it and least deserve it? What if your antenna were up? What if you were looking for an opportunity to love the way Jesus loves and to love someone who would be, who would be shocked, who would be blown away? You see, love has its greatest impact when it's least expected, when it's least deserved. One final story from the life of Jesus before... I shut it down here, Luke chapter 7. In this story, Jesus is invited to have dinner at the house of a prominent religious leader. And while he's there, a woman who lived a sinful life, that's Bible language for she was a prostitute. A woman who lived a sinful life shows up. And while they're reclining at the table, 
They used to recline at the table, right? They didn't have chairs. They didn't sit at the table. They reclined at the table, and they had their feet back away from the table. Why? Because in Jesus' day, you didn't want your feet anywhere near your food, right? This is why washing someone's feet was a big chore, right? So a woman who had lived a sinful life, this prostitute, she shows up, and she approaches Jesus' feet. And what she does is she begins to cry, and she begins to weep, and she begins to sob all over them. And then she starts to kiss them. And then she takes her hair out, and she takes her hair down. And that's something that was very improper and even trashy in that day. And she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then finally, she anoints his feet with some perfume that she had. And Jesus' host, we're told, this man named Simon, this very well-respected, God-following religious guy, he's disgusted. He's disgusted at this entire scene. If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, he thinks to himself. And then Jesus turns to Simon and he tells a story. And here's what he says. Simon Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And of course, the point he's making is this. You can only love extravagantly when you understand how extravagantly you've been loved. The amount of love that comes out of you is the amount of love you've allowed to let come into you. This is why Jesus says over and over and over and over again, do you understand how loved you are? Do you understand how forgiven you are? Do you understand the grand debt that God has paid on your behalf? Do you know that your heavenly father doesn't just love you? He doesn't just kind of tolerate you. He loves you extravagantly. He loves you in a way that should shock you. He loves you in a way that's audacious. He loves you in a way that should blow your hair back. And that should change your life. This is why, friends, time and time again, when you read the New Testament this week, you're going to see it. Jesus says over and over and over again in the Gospels and then throughout the epistles, the same thing. Remain in my love, Jesus says. Just stay in my love. Abide in my love, he says. Be rooted and established in love. Let, let, let your nourishment, let the nourishment of your life Sink way into the love of God so that the love of God is constantly flowing through your life and through your veins. Paul says it this way. God has poured out his love into our hearts. Like God is this never-ending faucet of love and he's just pouring it into us. And Jesus, and, and Jesus is, Paul is saying, make sure that your life is underneath that stream so that the love of God is constantly flowing through you. Because there is no way for you to leave here and try harder to love extravagantly. It may work for a day. It may work for a week. You might even make it for a couple weeks. But friends, you do not have the power. You do not have the ability to love like Jesus without experiencing the constant and continual renewing of the love of Jesus in your life. We love, the scriptures say, why? Because he first loved us. Us. This is about your life and your heart being transformed by the amazing and extravagant love of God. 
This is not about you trying harder to be loving. This is about God changing your heart from the inside out and making you on the inside an extravagantly loving person. And that only happens when you grow in your knowledge and understanding and in the experience of the extravagant love that your heavenly father has for you. Do you love him so much that if you saw him, you'd weep and kiss his feet and throw your body on the ground in front of him and hug him and thank him and say, God, I'd do anything. Do you love him that much? Because if you don't, then you don't know how much he's done for you. You don't know how much he's forgiven you. You don't understand how much he loves you. And that's why every single week in this church, we gather and we come to these tables, not just as a routine, not just as a religious exercise, but as a way of saying, remind me, God, how much you love me, how valuable I am, how extravagantly you love me, even though I don't deserve it, even though I've done nothing to earn it. And God says, let me remind you, through this bread and through this cup, I love you so much that I sent my one and only son, my one and only son to die on a cross, to suffer and die, and to take on death. And I sent him, why? Because my love for you is extravagant. That's what this meal means. It's a declaration again of how extravagantly loved you are. Will you let it change you today? Will you let it transform you today? Taste the bread, the little cracker, just taste it. And as you chew it today, just think about what he went through. And remember that he did it for you. And when you drink that cup, remember his blood that was shed. Remember the lashes that he took. Remember the cross that he hung on. Remember the separation from his father that he endured. Why? Because you're that precious. Friends, that's a love that'll change us. That's a love that must mark us. That's a love that has to define us as followers of Jesus together. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite you forward to come and receive the meal when you're ready. And I'll just leave it there and just let you do business with God today. Whatever you need to do. Maybe there's a person on your mind or heart. Maybe there's just a reminder that you need, that you're valuable and that you matter so much. Maybe God's speaking into a relationship or a situation in your life today and you know that there are some things that he wants to do and so I'll just let him do it. Let the spirit speak to you. Just say, God, speak to me. And when you're ready, come forward. Father, this morning, we give you glory and honor and praise. I confess that I just sort of blow past this love thing so much because it seems kind of trite sometimes. And yet this week I was convicted again that it is not trite, that it is significant that it is paramount. Drive this one deep into our lives, Lord. Challenge us and help us and remind us and encourage us. And may we be a place, Lord, that reflects your extravagant love. We pray it all in Christ's name. And, and before I send you, I want to say one more thing. There's a really, a really cool ending to that story in Luke. The woman, the tears, the hair, and then Jesus tells that story and he says, who, who would love more? And he says, the one who has a greater debt. And then, and then Jesus pauses and he looks at Simon 
and he does something fantastic. You remember? You don't remember, because I didn't either. He asks a question. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? And of course, Simon didn't. All he saw was activities and guilt and shame and a lifestyle. And he saw a dirty, filthy sinner that he wanted nothing to do with. And the point Jesus is making is is certainly, oh, I see her. You don't see her, Simon, but I do see her because she's a person and she's a woman and she is a daughter created in the image of her heavenly father. And friends, see, sometimes loving extravagantly starts with just seeing people just looking past the exterior, just looking past the circumstances, just looking past their, their attitude or, or their temper or their mean words. It means looking a little farther and seeing them, seeing them with the eyes of Jesus. And so as you go today, go with this question, is there someone God wants me to see this week? And then by seeing love, That's my encouragement for you as you go, that you will love extravagantly, that you'll love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. And there'll be some good stories out of that, won't there? God bless you, friends. Go with God, and we'll see you next Sunday.